The Permaculture Podcast is only made possible through the support of listeners. And for the fall fundraiser, we need your help. We have two goals this year, to fund the podcast through 2022 and to complete a special multi-part series documenting the legendary work of Rosemary Morrow. To do both, we need to raise $12,000. Since the podcast started, approximately 600 people have donated to keep this work moving forward. That's just one listener per episode. Be our one listener today and help us share permaculture with the more than 25,000 people who will listen to the interview which follows with Shantri Kassara. With your donation, we're able to continue to promote permaculture education and programming completely free to people all over the world. Whether you can give $1, $2, 5 or more, any amount will help. Join the community of listeners who help us make permaculture accessible to anyone with an internet connection. You can give online to this campaign at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast, using Venmo at permaculturepodcast, or drop something in the mail. The Permaculture Podcast, care of Scott Mann, 210 East Fairfax Street, number 300, Falls Church, Virginia, 22046. Whether you're brand new to permaculture or it's something you've practiced for years, the amount of information available can feel overwhelming. With thousands of articles, hundreds of classes, and more books than we can count, just finding a starting point is daunting. Whether you're looking for the next steps on a property or feeling like your permaculture career is in a rut, book a meandering with me today. This casual phone call will help you define your strengths and develop ways to help you become the permaculture practitioner you want to be. Check out thepermaculturepodcast.com meandering to find out more and schedule your call today. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. This is the patron edition of the Permaculture Podcast. Continuing the series on permaculture, land, and land access, in this interview I'm joined by Amy Rose Foll of Virginia Free Farm. Amy Rose shares how she and the team at VFF use the farm as an incubator of ideas that empower individuals and organizations to get food and gardens into communities. She also discusses how growing food is a liberating experience for everyone, ways to find land to grow on, and some organizations working with gardening and growing for its therapeutic value. Throughout, you'll hear Amy Rose's thoughts on what we can do to make a difference right now where we are. Enjoy this conversation with Amy Rose, and I'll join you again after. You really can't think about competing with big ag. Because that system was put in place for a reason. It works the way it was meant to. It doesn't really serve us, but we can create alternative modeling in making individuals that want to check out of that system just a little bit more self-sufficient, a little bit healthier. And that's what we're working towards is creating an alternative to being stuck or held hostage by a food desert. With all of your models for achieving food sovereignty, could you speak a bit more about the garden projects you're involved with? Yeah, so there's so many of them. It all started here at the free farm, but it's really kind of become a wild beast of its own making. So I like to describe it really as the free farm where we centrally operate out of is kind of like the hub of a wagon wheel. And all of these little offshoots, we have 
all of these different programs that we do, but we don't actually run them. We empower the community to take ownership and a hold of them for their, themselves because they just come in and administer things. That doesn't serve anyone. And also, I know Americans are so in love with this rugged individualism idea of like, there's got to be a hero. There's got to be someone in charge. That's why we, I mean, and you can even find it on our website. We have an agricultural free share where you can basically get all of the information you need that would otherwise be conveyed to you in a sustainable agriculture degree for free on our website. You can access it 24 hours a day. Anybody can access it. So what we try to do is really we start in the center, the farm, come up with all of these ideas. We're going to do this. Our board got together last year and we were talking about doing a community fridge program. A quick search on Instagram actually brought me to Taylor Scott, this amazing young woman who had this idea that she wanted to do the RVA community fridges. She even had an Instagram page already. They just weren't operating yet. So basically what we do is empower all of these community members to work with us like a big family, feeding each other, feeding the community. And she wanted to do it. We had a quick conversation on the phone. I got one of our sponsors to agree to pay for one fridge a month for 13 months. And the community fridges was born and we didn't have to do it ourselves. And I think that's really the way to go is all of us working together because there doesn't need to be any one central person in charge, as is kind of customary. I think it works better, actually, as a consensus, and we are stronger as a team doing things as a community and taking care of ourselves. Because the people in charge of us as a country, they don't care about us. We function for them as a commodity. So what I want to do, or what my dream is, is all of these programs together working in concert to create all those spokes on the wheel and start functioning as an alternative model for the status quo. Because, and I know it's a played out quote saying the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. That is true. We are literally nothing more than a commodity. All of us, not just marginalized communities, all of us across the country that are not part of the 1%, we are all beholden to this system. And we are all nothing more than a commodity traded back and forth between big ag and big pharma. The food makes us sick. It's low quality. It makes more sense for traditional farmers to grow commodity crops, or I hate to say it, soybean and corn junk that makes us sick, that's processed into everything. And then they can sell us more drugs. And then they can sell us more food. And it is a never-ending cycle until the day we die. But if we can make ourselves a little bit healthier by taking control of our food system, our food sources, get back to the dirt, back to the earth, back to our seeds, because seeds are power. If you control a food system, you control a people. If you can feed yourself, you really truly don't need anybody else as far as that goes. And that's real power. And that's health. And all of these things have been foisted upon us by big government. And I'm not like one of those outrageous anti-government people, but this is literally the reality that we're living in. And all of those subsidized crops that farmers are paid to grow, I think that sometimes we forget that we are paying for those in our taxes. And we look at it as, oh, this is so much cheaper that something that's responsibly grown or grown in our community, all that. It's really not cheaper because we are paying for it. I don't know whether it's more proper to say we're paying for it on the back end or we're paying for it up front through our taxes and deductibles and our health care and everything else. 
But I mean, that cheap gallon of milk, that cheap box of processed corn chips, we've already paid for that. The 99 cents in the bag probably goes to the marketing companies and whatnot, but we've already paid for that. And we've paid dearly in our health and liberty and everything else. And it's unfortunately been made worse for marginalized communities, especially in some of the areas that I work. We help put urban farms into some of the lowest income neighborhoods in central Virginia. And we started working with Virginia tribes. My tribe is from Canada. And I also have heritage from the Penobscot in Maine. But working with Virginia tribes has really been great because you control the food, you control the people. That's what they did to my people. That's what they did to the African diaspora that was forcibly brought here. They were Americans by force. And food was a controlling factor for both of our people. And so it's really great to be able to make a little bit of change, hopefully making people healthier, making people more self-sufficient and empowered and being able to empower those people that are going to raise the next generation and so on and so forth. I really think that urban agriculture, sustainable agriculture, regenerative agriculture, permaculture, creating these food forests in cities like Blacksburg, Virginia has a food forest in a part, one of their city parks. I really think that if we have a lot more of that going on, it's going to make everything better for our children, for our children's children, and we owe it to them. That's our obligation as a human being to make things better for the next generation and next several generations to come, honestly. And then what does that work look like when you're helping to create urban farms in the cities of Central Virginia? All right. Do you really want to know? <laughs> okay. So this... I may be a little bit of a pirate here. So a lot of times, can I be completely honest with you? If you don't mind it going out over the air. All right. A lot of times it's got to be a case of ask forgiveness instead of ask permission. So the city of Richmond did work with RVA Food Justice a couple of years ago. And we came in and brought in a bunch of seeds and plants. RVA Food Justice arranged with the city for the lot that was not being used in Gilpin Court. And they had community work days. The community actually does the thing. I guess that's really silly and generalized to say they do the thing. So the community members that actually live there do it. V, that was my point of contact at RVA Food Justice. She works at the Black Herbalist Guild. And somehow they, they managed to recruit a ton of like hipster college kid volunteers. They actually did it properly through the proper channels. And then the community members in the Black community that lived there, they actually came in and did the work themselves, too. We came in with chickens and vegetables, plants, seeds, everything they, they would need. But the actual community members did the, the thing. It's their garden. It's their urban farm. But I have in other instances, like Community Roots Garden, my elder with the Richmond Indigenous Society, she just, without asking took over, eradicated a massive overgrowth of kudzu. If you live in the American South, you know what kudzu is and you know it's bad business and it's impossible to get out. They mobilized a team of volunteers to really tirelessly work to mitigate and keep at bay this kudzu and turned it into a green oasis of food in the heart of Northside, Richmond, Virginia. It was absolutely amazing. The city didn't end up noticing, and you know what? They didn't care. 
and they're still there to this day. And so that urban farm is going on several seasons now, and it's absolutely amazing. We've got things like the MLK Urban Agriculture Center that we are getting started this year. All the plants are in the ground. What happened with that is it is actually on land owned by Richmond Public Schools behind MLK Elementary in Richmond, Virginia. And it had been basically just left vacant for the last six or seven years. One of my co-conspirators approached me about consulting on this. He and I met up with the school board chair, Cheryl, and we went jogging around the track. She didn't even know those acres were back there. She didn't know the lights were back there, the fencing, the facilities. She had no idea that any of this is in place. And it's right behind one of the worst performing schools in all of Virginia and in one of the most impoverished neighborhoods in the city. So basically it was, I know you're here, but I don't want to know you're here. And now we've got a 6,000 foot square foot garden going in there. Well, it's already going in there. It's going to be maintenance with the help of volunteers in Virginia Tech. They're a land-grant university here in Virginia and have an amazing agricultural and horticulture program. So we've recruited some of those professors and students to help us work that land and support the project. And we are aiming towards creating a world-class agriculture composting recycling center to support the Richmond Public Schools and MLK Elementary to add some STEM programming opportunities to get their hands in the dirt, try new foods, a piece of land that they didn't even know that they had. And so basically, I know that sounds a little bit bad in a way, but I think it's long-term going to be a really great thing for the community. And we have so many people so excited about it. We've got the place for a year. And I I know it's not going away, but you just got to do. There's tons of opportunity. And I actually think there is actually websites out there for people that want to start gardens that don't have access to land. I think healing gardens might be one of them. I could be wrong on healing gardens. But I know that there are websites out there where you can actually partner with other community members that have a little land they're not doing anything with. And I really encourage anybody that might be listening to this podcast to start searching Google for those opportunities because there's a ton of places out there. On the farm last year, we gave over a couple of acres to Black Loon Farms, which was an LGBTQ BIPOC farm co-op. They had lost their land at where the, or the place they were before. I had extra space. I literally was doing nothing with. And I don't, I'm not in the business of growing grass, nor am I in the business of renting out space. So I literally contacted them and was like, hey, come grow food, be happy, get out into nature. I'm sure there's a ton of opportunities like that out there if you start searching. I've heard of people putting listings on like Nextdoor and Craigslist looking for land or, Mm -hmm. you know, searching for tax sales in cities to see what land is considered abandoned or vacant in order to get some of those pieces to start growing. I would have never thought about Nextdoor. I've never been on that app. That's a great idea, actually. I know it's a meme that I've seen recently. But I really feel like stigmatization of the American lawn would actually be a really good thing for us. Could you imagine, like, what would be freed up by using that land to cultivate food for the community? It would be amazing. Absolutely amazing. 
I've done some back of the envelope math a couple of times based on those the figures that come from various authors and gardeners about how much food we can grow on a suburban acre, like how many calories that mm -hmm. can actually provide. And it does mm -hmm. become kind of ridiculous how much food we can actually grow around our cities without ever having to touch that commodity cropland. Yeah. And can you imagine the fossil fuel emissions that would be saved by being able to do that, not transport that stuff from California's Central Valley, which is in a water crisis anyway? So it doesn't even make sense that we're doing all of these things. I'm not saying cut that out completely, because I know, you know, we all love our avocados and oranges and tomatoes in January. I get it. I totally get it. And demand for access to those things is always going to be a thing now that it's just become part of our culture and part of what we think that we're entitled to, you know, but it could help offset a tremendous amount of irrigation and fossil fuel burning. And there's some value in the patience it takes and the, there's a therapeutic value in the patience of gardening and being outside and all of that. And I think we kind of lose sight of that. I know I definitely personally lost sight of that. I was absolutely in that culture of go, 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 work, work, work. I actually honestly think that I am a workaholic for 10 years of my life. I worked two full-time jobs and I relished doing it. I was a nurse during the day and a firefighter at night. And I felt like I was living my best life, but I didn't have time for any of the little things like that in life. And it was only after I let those things go and started my farm that I really felt good or healthy. And I thought I was making a difference then, but now I feel like there is so much more to be enjoyed from slowing down a little bit and I guess doing things a little slower. Could you say that? I mean, there's the slow food movement, you know, and there should be a slow life movement too. What you said about the therapeutic side, I think about a friend of mine who came back, who's a veteran and came back with a TBI mm -hmm. and some, some PTSD and other things and something that he's been open about in our conversations. And I know that there are organizations that are connecting veterans to the land. And he's a permaculture mm -hmm. practitioner. And he's talked about how much being able to farm helps him process those experiences. And we have all of this evidence emerging about what a nature connection is like, the value in gardening for our well-being, both as a form of exercise, as well as being immersed in outside spaces. And I just think that we're going to see more and more of that over time as these things are looked at and researched right now. You know, it's still kind of anecdotal, but it is emerging. And I expect we'll see a lot more about the value and quality of these kinds of activities. Oh, absolutely. So I'm an Army veteran, and I there's actually in your area there up in Northern Virginia, I know, but personally know several farmer veterans that are in your area. One of them is Fields for Valor, and he also is an Army veteran, combat veteran, and he works with other vets to use it as a therapeutic tool to help other people's lives improve. And another good friend of mine is John Jackson down at Comfort Farms in Milledgeville, Georgia. And his farm, it's Stag Vets, that is the parent nonprofit to Comfort Farms. But he works with other veterans to prevent veteran suicide. And he has a very successful operation down there. They sell retail to the wider community. 
at Comfort Farms and Peter Scott at Fields for Valor that also does the Veteran Healing Farm. He actually provides all of their food free of charge to military families that might otherwise qualify for food stamps or assistance, financial assistance from the government. And so he actually helps feed people too. It's amazing how many of us there are. And this is where I love these conversations so much because each of us have our connections to the world through the lives that we've lived and what we've done. And so it brings more of these organizations to the forefront for people to be aware of and even know that something like this may exist in their area to go looking for, to get onto Google and to type in their region and, you know, veteran farm or something like that and see who they might connect with. Yeah, there's a really great website. It's the Farmer Veteran Coalition. And that's a really great resource for finding the homegrown by heroes or farmer veterans in your area. A lot of those, because there is such a big movement, back to the land movement now, a lot of them are farming responsibly. They're getting into permaculture. They're getting into silviculture and silvopasture and regenerative agriculture in a big way. And so a lot of them are really great small farms, farming responsibly and healing the land and healing the people there as well. And it speaks to the value and power of having farms where people live and being able to have access to our farmers and the people that we get our food from, not just in the opportunity to go to a farmer's market for a couple of minutes every week to pick up our staples, Mm -hmm. but to have a deep relationship with where our food comes from. So the, the farmer's market access thing kind of as a sore spot for me, not a sore spot. I don't know how to really articulate what I'm saying. One of the programs that we started recently was a UPIC. Big deal, right? A million farms across the U.S. have UPIC or wayside stands or honor system stands on the side of the road, right? I was interviewed last year, maybe a year and a half ago by the Rural Virginia Healthcare Podcast because I do work in food justice and food security, but I also used to be a healthcare practitioner. One of the things that is the biggest irritant to me is access to those programs that farmers markets put out. Like, so here in Virginia, we have what's called Virginia Fresh Match, where people that are authorized to accept SNAP and farms can get authorized to accept SNAP or farmers markets, what have you, can participate in this program called Virginia Fresh Match, in which we can offer our fresh foods to people that use EBT or food stamps. For basically half off, it's an incentive program to get those community members to buy fresh, buy local, right? Great in theory. Not so great in execution because if you're living in a housing project on the east side of Richmond, you are not going to be able to get to the west side farmer's market if you don't have transportation that's reliable or you've got kids at home and no sitter. You don't want to drag a two-year-old in the 90-degree heat on a bus line 20 minutes away carry all those things. Maybe the two-year-old has a meltdown or you're on, uh, they all are working. There's a work requirement or you're working Saturday morning and you literally don't have the opportunity to go there. So one of the things we're doing is we actually partnered with the local rotary group to be able to accept snap mobile. They can contact us, put an order in for plants, seeds, eggs, meat, vegetables, whatever they want. We have a mobile card reader for SNAP, and the Rotary will deliver it to them if they do not have transportation to us or to the local farmer's market. So we're really trying to democratize accessibility to fresh food. 
because I really think that these legislators that come up with these programs, I think their hearts are in the right place, but they cannot imagine themselves in the shoes of the people that need to access these programs. And I think that's where a lot of the um, shortcomings come from. So we really do need to be imaginative and use the whole community, use the community groups that are willing to go the extra mile, do the deliveries, dream big to solve all of these problems, because there's a ton of problems in accessibility. And I'm not talking just with SNAP, but like you said, access to your local farmers. A lot of people don't have access to their local farmers because they do live in these food deserts. And, you know, I've been part of meetings, Zoom meetings, massive Zoom meetings for, you know, intertribal agriculture summits. And we talk about a lot of the things that, and they are pervasive to this day. And I know I said earlier, you control the food, you control the people. And everyone knows that is how colonists originally controlled us, burning our food stores, moving us so that we didn't have access to our waterways where we fished or fields where we farmed or woods where we hunted by legislating away, removing, and destroying, we were held hostage pretty much to food sources. But really, the same thing is happening in the food apartheid that's taking place in, say, inner city of St. Louis, Missouri, or Harlem, or Creighton Court in Richmond, or Anacostia in Southeast D.C. The same things are happening today, just different demographics. And I really feel that we need to be imaginative in how we solve these problems. And at the same time, the legislators that are trying to solve these problems, we need to get big ag out of their pockets, of course. Everyone knows that. But we, they also need to be able to empathize and put themselves in these people's shoes and really understand what it's like to have to overcome these problems. I've been out in town in Richmond walking around R Street and 29th. And there's literally nowhere to go except for one corner store that sells like Slim Jims and ramen noodles and greasy hamburgers. And that's not something that you can sustain your family on. But there are people, and I've witnessed this firsthand, that don't know what a radish is or collard greens or how to cook a whole chicken that live in these neighborhoods. And it's not their fault. It's because they haven't had access to anything I grew up in a native household where the commodity foods that people joke about, like reservation commodity food, the white and black packaging, that was not an unheard of thing to be in my grandmother's cupboard. Kind of joked about now the cans of pork with juices or the big gross blocks of cheese that they used to distribute to tribal members. It's disgusting. It's not good for you. And it serves the purpose of controlling people and these food deserts. They're there on purpose. They're absolutely there on purpose. And if we can empower people to have access, even if it's just like a community group, like the Fluvanna Rotary, helping to deliver these farmers food, it's good for everybody. It's good for the community. It's good for the farmers. And it makes people that are doing the deliveries feel good about themselves too, by being able to quote unquote, be the change. We need to learn from those things, I think. And it could have far reaching impact. And in the few minutes we have remaining, Amy Rose, Do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? My first inclination is to say plant an extra row. If you are growing already, plant an extra row, give back to the community in any way you can, even if it's just taking food to your neighbor next door. You will get much more out of that interaction than they will, I guarantee you. And it will feel so good. 
and you can rest assured knowing that like you are making, I mean, even if it's just a very small difference, whether it's in their mental health or their physical health, because they need it, you will be making an impact that will live beyond you. And that was Amy Rose Foll. You can find more about her and her farm at virginiafreefarm.org with a link to that in the show notes. Next up in this series is Rihanna Kowalsik of Share a Seed and Slow Food DC as we look at seed swapping and mutual aid as acts of community outreach and empowerment. Until then, spend each day expanding your impact as a seed saver, grower, or activist while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other. <laughs>